this is really cool, right? I love coming in, and thanks to the, uh, I think it was the Highland family group who put up all of our wonderful decorations, and hopefully you guys saw that. I don't know about you guys, I love the Christmas season. Who here loves the Christmas season? Raise your hand. There's some, there's maybe some who are like, yeah, I could take it or leave it. But I wanted to get a little interactive this morning, and I thought I would take from you all some thoughts and ideas, like maybe someone could like raise their hand and I'll call on you. It's like school. Right? And you could tell me just one thing you really love about the Christmas season. It could be something general. It could be something specific you do with your family or personally. So I just want to get some of those things here. So let me raise your hand. Don't be shy. Yes? We get a family Christmas ornament every year. A, a family Christmas ornament and you put on the tree, I'm assuming. So you're like stacking those up. And so you got a few. It's getting full already, and you have many years ahead of you, right? Yeah. Good. I like that. Who else? Somebody else. Yeah. Linda. The music. The music, right? I love it, too. I love that all of a sudden, like, all the radios, you go into stores. Even stores where you're like, nobody here knows Jesus, right? And they've got, like, Christmas carols playing. You're like, that song is about Jesus. I love it. Yeah. That's good. Somebody else. Zach. Christmas lights. Yep, that's a ton of fun. Yeah, I was out hanging mine on, on Thursday in the drizzle because of all the snowstorms and travel, and I had to keep coming inside because my fingers were cold. I didn't, but I got them up. Somebody else? Chris. Dale. Yeah, and what relates to that, just the public display, you know, of the, of the season, even though it's more and more central country, it's still, Yeah, yeah, it's even though, yeah, even though the culture is increasingly opposed or just disinterested in Christianity, once a year, everybody sort of engages in this thing that you go, well, at its heart, it's, it's a Christian thing. Yeah, I like that too. Jeremy. I just really love Hallmark movies. <laughs> Jeremy loves Hallmark movies. That's good. Have you seen those charts where it, it tells you that you could figure out the, you can just make up a plot of a Hallmark movie, just pick and choose, right? Jess? I just love the intentionality of spending time together, especially because it's cold outside, and we still get to go outside and enjoy, it, even though it's cold, spend time together. Yeah, spending time together, and it's, it's almost like, I mean, we know that's what God wants us to do. And so there's almost like this season that's been built in now that we're like, oh, it's like we're, we're focused on doing that in family and time together. That's good. Somebody else? I thought I saw a hand. I see a hand over here. Anybody else? Somebody else? Corey? Tamales. Tamales. You do a family tradition of doing tamales on Christmas Eve, right? Yeah, that's good. That's, that's hey, hey, it's good stuff to love. Gretchen, would you... Advent wreath, like at home, you guys do one together. Or, yeah, yeah. We were looking at that this week and like remembering what do the candles mean, and it's pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Well, good. Oh, Ned, one more, Ned. The movie Scrooge with Bill Murray. <laughs> <laughs> the movie Scrooged, starring Bill Murray. 
Yep. Well, even, I'm sure most families, like if you live in our culture, you probably watch movies. Most of us probably have sort of our own favorite, our families. We, we, watch, we watch like a Garfield Christmas special as a family and a Muppets Christmas special. Those are things that sort of filter our families. I love all these things, right? I love these stories. I love the traditions and the activities. But I think there's something we want to ponder too as well, writers. E.B. White wrote Charlotte's Web, right? And he said, to perceive Christmas through its wrapping becomes more and more difficult every year. Right? We, we understand that's the case. Like, we love all these things, and all of these things are really good, but it seems like the more we have technology and the more we have culture and the more you start layering all these things on there, it's, it's sort of like Christmas music. Right? Every year, somebody makes a new Christmas album that's pretty good, and if you keep adding them up, at some point you'll never hear Nat King Cole again because you have all these new ones that you've been listening to, right? So it's one of those things. These things sort of layer on top of each other. And again, I, I don't see... Like, Christmas is not evil. It's not bad. I think it is a good thing. Uh, I love the stuff we do. It has importance, like we said, for building relationships with each other and within families and and focusing on those dynamics we have in our families and our spiritual families. But I think it's also important to consider some of the statistics about what's happened at Christmas, right? I looked it up. In 2019, the expectation, the industry experts, I don't know how they calculate this, they expect the average American is going to spend how much money on the Christmas season? The average individual, not household, the average American individual is going to spend $920 on holiday gifts. $920 per person on holiday gifts. That's up from $885 last year. And so they expect the total in spending is going to, in America, is going to exceed $1 trillion. That's a lot. That's a lot of wrapping. That's a lot of wrapping. And so when it comes to gifts, too, we go, oh, that's pretty cool, and we're giving gifts, and it's part of the family dynamics, but we can become so focused on those things, and we forget that they don't last. I looked up those statistics, too. There's some studies that show that almost 10% of gifts break within the first week. So by New Year's Eve, one out of 10 gifts won't be working anymore, according to this study. They say that by March... 40%. And that only one in four gifts will still be in use in 12 months. And you go, all these gifts, all this money, all of this wrapping, all of this stuff, and it isn't lasting. So we go, okay, we understand, like we talked about, there's, there's the important stuff, and then there's the stuff that doesn't last. And how do we walk that out? On one hand, it's fun, right? Christmas, there's good to it. There's good in being together. There's good in giving gifts. On the other hand, it's, it's not lasting and it's expensive and it maybe takes us away from other stuff and increases our stress level and all those kind of things. And so for me, the way, I, I mean, this is, it's not like I'm telling you something new, right? I probably say this every year. You all probably say this. People say this all the time. Oh, Christmas, I get so caught up in the season or it's hard. And We say that all the time. And I go, okay, so we have to remind ourselves. We walk through this every year and there's this built-in celebration and, and this built-in focus on the birth of Jesus. And yet every year we have to fight this battle. So how do we do it? And something that helps me, I think, of, of this quote from C.S. Lewis. And I love this picture of him because it looks like he says this and then he goes downstairs to see what Santa left him under the tree. He says, once in our world, the stable had something in it that was bigger 
than our whole world. I like the way he put that. We need to hold on to the truth about Jesus. As we have these celebrations, as we spend the money, as we give gifts, as we engage in the holiday season, my hope is that each of us as believers would hold on to who Jesus is. Last week we sort of started, we were talking about the names of Jesus, and we started with this verse in Isaiah chapter 9, this prophecy over 700 years before Christ was born. It said, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And last week we looked at how only Jesus was able to take on all of those things. He was all of those names. He fulfilled all of those things, and that was very exciting. And so today we're going to flip over here in Isaiah and back into chapter 7. Another prophecy, it says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Does anyone know what Emmanuel means? It means God with us. That's right. God with us. And I love this verse because this verse almost acts as a bridge in the Bible. It acts as a bridge. Well, what do I mean? Well, what is it bridging from? Well, it's bridging from all the way back at the very beginning. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. And what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Men sin. Man sin. Adam and Eve have the first sin. They sin. They break their relationship with God. And God names the consequences. And the consequences for those, we still feel them today. Those consequences are pain and toil and brokenness and death. But what's not a consequence? The conse- one of those consequences that God doesn't give is, you're separated from me forever. We are separated. Our sin separates us from God, but he does not separate us from ever and forever. And right there in Genesis chapter 3, God makes a promise that he's going to come back. He's going to redeem them. He's going to have redemption, and that redemption is going to be a form of God with us. And so here we come through the bridge in Isaiah chapter 7, and it says, His name shall be God with us. Here is the problem. The solution is coming. And so then we turn over into the, we flash forward to the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 1, we read this. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And here comes the big connection. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So here's Jesus. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. Now, there's so many things we can say about Jesus, right? We spend every week talking about Jesus, about who he was and what he did. 
And we talked about some of those things even last week, but today we're going to focus on this verse from John chapter 1, which some of you there in Memory Madness have memorized this verse. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh. We call this, we have a word for this. In theology, we call this the incarnation, which is a big word, incarnation. What does it mean? It comes from Latin, and the root word of that is, I think one of my Latin people, I don't know if they know it, Reeve, do you know? It's carnis. Do you know what carnis is? Flesh, right? So anytime you go get Mexican food, and you say, I'm going to have a carne asada burrito, <laughs> flesh. <laughs> Maybe don't think too much about that, right? But that's what it means. Put on flesh. It puts on flesh. The incarnation is not just, oh, he put on a costume. He put on flesh, right? Like if for some reason I was like, I'm going to go become a bear in the woods. I couldn't just put on a bear costume and pretend to be a bear. I would have to somehow actually become a bear, because if I was just in a costume, I would still just be me in a costume. I would have to become a bear. In the same way Jesus did this, Jesus became a man. God became a man. God in the flesh. He took on a human body, not just a costume. Another term for this, sort of in the theological world, is hypostatic. It's a big word. It's called the hypostatic union. But hypostatic is really, they could have just called it personal, because that's what it means. It's the personal union. It's the union of Jesus' divine nature with the human body. Jesus did that. And so we have a math problem here, don't we? What do you mean? It's difficult for us to understand as a brain. So I tried to come up with an, an analogy of how it isn't. All right, two things I love. Eggnog and coffee. Anybody else love Eggnog. Anybody else hate eggnog? Yes, right? I understand. You put the right things in eggnog and it tastes a lot better, right? So I like, sometimes we get eggnog at Christmas. One of my, maybe this is my holiday thing. I like that we get eggnog and instead of creamer, I put a little bit of eggnog in my coffee, right? And I like that. But let's imagine you were like, yes, I got coffee. I got eggnog. I love those things. I'm going to pour them together into one drink. Now, you might be like, ooh, that'd be kind of get lukewarm because you're taking the cold thing and the hot thing, but let's just say it would all work out, right? But you know, you don't have something. It's not all coffee and all eggnog. What is it? It's half coffee and half eggnog. So this is not the hypostatic union. <laughs> this is not a good example, right? This is not how it works. Because see, Jesus was 100% God. We talked about that last week. Jesus is 100% God, but at the same time, he also became 100% man. He wasn't just God in a man costume. He's 100% man and 100% God. Which means he was really kind of 200%, I guess. It's hard for our brains to really get a hold of that, but that is what happened. That is the hypostatic union. He was fully God and fully man, not half God and half man. So today we're going to look at how he was both of those things. We'll start with Jesus as God. 
This verse in Colossians 1, 16 to 17 outlines it for us. It says, For by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let's summarize that and say, Jesus is God, the creator and ruler of all things. So how is that play itself out. Well, we're going to look at five different examples of how that plays out, and we see it in the Bible. The first one is that Jesus is God. He is the creator and ruler over creation. In Matthew chapter 8, we see an example of this. There rose a great storm on the sea, and the boat that Jesus was in with the disciples was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And we know what happens from there. Jesus calms the storm. He exhibits power over creation, a power that none of us, even today, in this modern century, with all the technology we have, we can't control the weather. But he controlled the weather. He did it. And we looked at this very story in our last series on the Bible as we were looking at miracles and we realized there was no way this was a magic trick. No way. So Jesus did it. So we can see only the creator can have this kind of power over the natural universe. And Jesus proved he was God this way. A second way is that he was creator and ruler over angels and demons. Because demons are really just fallen angels, right? We've looked at that before. Hebrews chapter 1, it says, let all God's angels worship him. And they do. He's the creator and the ruler over them. And time and time again in the New Testament, we see Jesus exert control over the fallen angels, over the demons. He casts them out. He tells them to go here and to do this. And they don't like it, but they do it. He has that control. Only God could have that control. Jesus proves he's God with that level of control. He's also the ruler over sickness and disease. This one gets pretty personal for us, doesn't it? In Matthew chapter 9, this example, it says that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and doing what? Healing every disease and every affliction. The New Testament is full of these stories. All you've got to do is open up the Gospels and you'll see one after the other after the other. And in fact, healing was one of those things that the Jewish nation knew the Messiah was going to do to prove who he was, to prove that he was God. And he did it. And see, I think about today, right? We have such great medicine. We have great doctors and great hospitals. Anytime someone in my family or I get sick or I hear about somebody and they have a challenge and they go into the hospital and they help them and I say, man, aren't you thankful we live in the 21st century in America because we have amazing medicine and yet you go to any of those doctors, any of those medical professionals and not a single one has this kind of power. They may have great knowledge. They may have great skill. They may have great technology. They are not rulers over sickness and death. Only God is. And Jesus proved he was God in this way. He was ruler over death. In Mark chapter 16, it tells us, he says, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. This is the angels. The angels speaking. On the morning that Jesus rose from the dead, 
And last week we talked some about that, that miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And it was amazing, right? He showed up and in front of all of these witnesses, he demonstrated he has power over death. But he trumped it, didn't it? Didn't he? he? He goes on and he raises himself from the dead. And that is amazing. And I know that that's what we really celebrate at Easter time. And so you might go, hey, isn't this kind of out of place here? But I think it's important. I, I don't have the wrong holiday here because the birth of Jesus Christ doesn't mean anything if we don't understand that at the end of his life, he actually rose from the dead. He proves that he is God that way. The fifth way Jesus shows us he's God is he's the creator and ruler over us, over mankind. In Luke chapter 1, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So when we think about earthly kingdoms, who rules over the kingdom? There's a reason it has the name kingdom, because the king is over them. And you might say, well, we don't have that here. I go, well, we have a group of people who kind of function, right, as the ruler, as the king over our kingdom. But who rules over the king? Well, I don't know. You might come up with some other organization or something else. But at some point, you keep asking, well, who rules over that? And who rules over that? At some point, at the top is God. And Jesus is there. Jesus proves he is God because he rules over mankind. So we looked at how Jesus is God. Let's flip over and look at how Jesus is man. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean? Well, we could probably talk about that for a long time. What does it mean to be human? But I think in some ways, one of those key elements of being human is limitations. We have our limitations. And about you, the older I get, the more I realize my limitations. I realize we have all sorts of boundaries. I have all sorts of problems. I have all manner of unsolvable dilemmas. And I think just as an aside, I I think sometimes that's maybe our biggest challenge is that we want to live outside the limitations that we have. I was describing it for somebody recently. I, I, as I mentioned last week, my sons and I were, were uh, doing a theater production this month. And this is kind of my first foray into the theater world. And I think one of those things you realize is they talk about, oh, you've got to get into character. Well, the only way to get into character is to into that person is to understand what? The setting. Is to understand the, the boundaries that have been given, the, the, the place, the time, the limitations. Otherwise, you're, you're like, I don't know, trying to be Superman and in Middle Earth or something, right? You go, that doesn't make sense. I'm trying to do something in the wrong place. God has placed us in this place, in this time, with these limitations, whatever they are, good or bad, and his goal is for us to become the characters in the setting that he's provided for us. And so I think about Jesus, and Jesus came and he became a man. He was the incarnation. He put on flesh. And so he had to experience those limitations. See, it would be totally unfair and totally incomplete if he was not fully human. Right? If I was going to go, again, back to my bear example, and become a bear, but still, like, go home and, and shower and, and sleep in a comfy bed and you know, eat, eat good food and not have to hibernate... I wouldn't be living within the boundaries that are set up for a bear, which is to live in the woods and sleep half the year and 
eat bugs and, <laughs> I don't know, shower in the stream or something. I don't know, right? I wouldn't be doing that. And so if Jesus had showed up and not been subjected to the limitations of humanity, he wouldn't be fully man, but he was. And so we're going to see some examples here uh, of Jesus having the complete human experience. And I hope this connects with you because every single one of us bumps into these limitations. Probably every day, at least every week, we run into these. The first thing that shows us Jesus had that complete human experience was that Jesus got tired. In John chapter 4 is one example. Jesus wearied. He was on a journey. He was wearied and he was sitting beside the well. It shows us Jesus got tired. Another verse in Matthew chapter 8 there it was back at that situation in the boat. There rose a great storm on the sea. The boat was being swamped by the waves. And Jesus was what? Asleep. Why? Well, because he was tired. Right? He was tired. Jesus got tired. Have you ever heard that question? Everyone said, what would you do if you could live off of three hours of sleep every night and be fully rested every day if you only slept three hours a night? Right? We ask those kind of dumb questions because they're never going to happen. There's nobody in the history of the earth who could do that consistently. Right? But we ask those questions, why? Because there is a boundary in our lives of fatigue. I remember when I was in college, I, I, it was sort of this culture in the architecture world of, hey, you stay up and do all-nighters, and when your project is due, you do a few all-nighters in a row. And I, I did this once, and I stayed up two nights in a row, and I like couldn't see straight. And I you know, was tripping over myself and falling asleep in class, and I went to bed and slept the wrong times, and my clock got all turned off, and I was tired. And I said, why would I ever do that? Right? So Jesus didn't show up to earth and just, oh, I don't have to sleep. He didn't have some advantage in this area. Jesus was man. He got tired. Jesus had that boundary. Another way he had a boundary was that he felt hungry. There in Mark 11, it says, On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was what? Hungry. So what did he do? And seeing in the distance a fig tree, he went to see if he could find anything on it to eat. He got hungry. He wanted to eat. My stomach is growling now. I probably didn't have enough breakfast this morning. I have that same boundary. Jesus walked into that. In my house, I estimate between the eight of us who live there, about half of the daylight hours are spent with people either preparing or eating or cleaning up food. Right? We spend a lot of time, all of us do, spend a lot of time going after food to fulfill our hunger. We have a burden. We have a boundary. Hunger is a result of what? Our need for energy to sustain us in the things that we need to do. Jesus took on that burden when he became a man. He didn't just, oh, I don't have to eat. I'm good. I'm God. Nope, he became a man. Another way is that Jesus had emotions. Jesus was a man because he had emotions. There in John 11, we see that shortest verse. Jesus wept. It wasn't just that, oh, some tears came out of his eyes. It came from his heart. He wept. He wept. I think it would have been powerful to see. And I think in some ways, we're all in a fight with these pesky little things we call our emotions. Okay, and we could debate whether they're really pesky or not. But they influence our decisions. They affect our conversations. They affect our relationships. They keep us from sleeping. Anyone kept up at night by your emotions? I know I am sometimes. 
they do us, they make us do all kinds of things. They drive us into poor eating decisions. Like, I've had a bad day, I'm going to have a big bowl of ice cream, right? We have those, these emotions, they affect us. I don't know about you, sometimes I can just go, man, what if I just didn't have emotions, I could just fly straight and make all the right decisions. Do you ever feel that way? I do. Why? Because we have emotions. They are a challenging burden to carry. They are challenging to control. They are challenging to understand. Jesus had them as well. Jesus became a man and he took on those same things, those same burdens, those same challenges, those same feelings. Jesus had them. Jesus wept to show that he is a man. Jesus also felt disappointment. There in Luke 13, he stands and looks out at the city of Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You were not willing. Jesus is profoundly disappointed by what happens there. In my experience, more than any other feeling, we have that sense of disappointment hinders us in life. I know it's true for me. There's no other feeling I have that makes me want to stay in bed in the morning than disappointment. It makes me want to quit. But in this verse we see here, Jesus had this desire. He had this desire for the nation of Israel, for the Jewish people, that they would turn to God. They would turn and accept him and be saved. And yet he knew they wouldn't. They did not. They would not. And he was disappointed. He was disappointed He took on that sense of disappointment, that boundary when he became a man. And not only was he disappointed, he was rejected. In Luke 4, Jesus gives this message to the people. And they're so excited. What do they do? They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill in which the town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. They wanted to throw him off the cliff. He was rejected. I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but I have a feeling every single person here would raise their hand if I said, have you ever been rejected? Have you ever felt this experience of rejection from your friends, from your family, from other people? We would say yes. Well, take comfort because Jesus too was rejected. He was rejected. He had that experience. It was part of experience as a man. So then we see this hypostatic union. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. It is the incarnation. He took on flesh. And it means that God is not distant. It is Emmanuel. God is with us. He is with us. I love this summary from the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
Can you see it? This is the summary of who Jesus was. He is fully God and fully man. This is the truth I would encourage us to hold on to as we face the distractions and all of the other stuff that goes on in this Christmas season as we embrace it and and all these things. Hold on to this. Hold on to the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. In fact, I would encourage you, maybe go get this verse and and print it out and tape it up somewhere where you can remember this. Why do we celebrate Christmas? This. Jesus is God and man. And so today I thought I'd close on an encouraging note and leave you with four verses. Four verses to help you remember why. Go, okay, so Jesus became man. He, He didn't just put on a bear suit, he became the bear. He became us. He became human flesh. Why? I'll give you four verses with four reasons. First, Luke 19.10. The Son of Man did what? He came to seek and save the lost. Jesus was born to seek and save those who are lost. And who is that? It's all of us. At some point in our life, some of us are found. Now he's found us. But he was born for us. If you are lost, he was born to seek and save you. Second verse, Luke four eighteen and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, this is Jesus speaking, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year the Lord's favor. Jesus was born to rescue the hurting suffering and broken people. And that's every single one of us. That's me and that's you. He came to rescue us to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It tells us in 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared, why? Is to destroy the works of the devil. The devil is at work around us. We've talked about that in the past. He is at work. The forces of evil oppose us in the spiritual realm, often in ways we can't see them, but Jesus was born to save us from that, to save us from the enemy, our our enemy, the devil. And finally, Matthew 1, 21, back to what we talked about at the beginning, she will bear a son and you you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus was born to demonstrate his love for you. Not for them, not for us, For you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. He was born to demonstrate that love. I hope that's encouraging to you. That's encouraging to me. Let's take that with us as we go into the holiday season. I'll go ahead and pray here, and we'll close. Thank you, Father. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to the earth. Not to pretend to be human, and not to be God walking around, Not to be some force or or cloud of energy, but you sent him to become fully man. God, I can't even get my brain around it. Sometimes I go, how is it not like mixing two drinks? How is it that he is both this and that? I don't know, but you did it. God, you made that union. You brought about that incarnation. And God, we worship you for it. Lord, as we walk through this season here of remembering your birth, that moment where you started this hypostatic union, where the incarnation began, Lord, as we worship you in that, help us to hold on to the truth, to remember 
who you are and what you did. Lord, help it to influence all of our decisions. And Lord, as we engage with all of the things, and there's so many good things going on in our lives this time of year, Lord, as we all shared here at the beginning, as we walk through all the good stuff, help us to see it as the backdrop, as the center of what you did in your incarnation. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.